Facebook was built using PHP, a programming language that was widely used in the late 90s and early 2000s. PHP allows developers to get web applications built quickly and easily, although PHP has a reputation for being difficult to scale. In the early days of Facebook, the company was scaling rapidly on every dimension. New users were piling into Facebook. Existing users were increasing their interactions and developing new patterns of usage. The Facebook application was rolling out new features quickly, adding them into the Facebook PHP codebase. A common pattern for scaling a large software application is to use a microservices architecture, breaking up the monolithic application into small services which can scale independently. For many applications, this pattern works well. But for some applications, microservices makes less sense. Microsoft Excel might be one example. In Excel, a user is making updates to a complex data model using formulas, functions, and other in-app tools that need to be fast, performant, and integrated. The user needs to have a sense that the Excel data model will update quickly in response to changes. A software team working on a spreadsheet product such as Excel might prefer to keep all the application logic in a monolithic application. A monolith can centralize logic and make it easier to reason about. A monolith can reduce the number of network hops, cutting down on distributed systems problems. Testing and deploying a monolithic application can be less complex than doing so in a distributed microservices system. Facebook chose to scale its PHP monolith rather than breaking it up into distributed microservices. Scaling PHP allowed Facebook to continue moving fast without going through a painful refactoring that would have slowed down the entire company. The first effort to scale PHP involved transpiling the entire PHP application into C++. This C++ version of Facebook ran faster and with a lower memory footprint. But C++ required ahead-of-time compilation. The PHP codebase had to be converted to C++ in one synchronous step. The Hip Hop Virtual Machine, or HHVM, is a just-in-time compiler that serves as an execution engine for PHP, as well as Hack, which is a language that Facebook created as a dialect of PHP. HHVM allows for dynamic execution of code that is written in PHP or Hack. The code is first transpiled into HHBC, a high-level bytecode format that serves as an intermediate language. This bytecode is dynamically executed in the HHVM. As a bytecode virtual machine, HHVM has similarities to V8, or the JVM, or the common language runtime. Keith Adams was an engineer at Facebook for six years, where he helped develop infrastructure to scale PHP effectively. Keith is now the chief architect at Slack, which is also a scaled PHP application. Keith returns to Software Engineering Daily to discuss why and how Facebook scaled PHP. We have a new app for iOS and Android. This app is a great listening experience for Software Engineering Daily. It includes all of our old episodes, as well as comments and social features. I'll be commenting on each of the episodes going forward for an extended period of time. So if you hear an episode that you have some commentary on, you can jump onto the app or onto softwaredaily.com, which is our web platform, and share your thoughts. Have a discussion on 
what you liked or disliked about the episode or what stood out to you. And if you want to become a paid subscriber, you can get ad-free episodes. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. Find Collabs is having an online hackathon with $2,500 in prizes. So if you're working on a project or you're looking for other programmers to build a project or collaborate with or start a company with or make music with, you can check out Find Collabs. With that, let's get on to today's show. Keith Adams, you are a chief architect at Slack, and you were a longtime Facebook engineer before that. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much, Jeff. Good to be here again. You had worked at VMware for eight years before you joined Facebook, and my sense is that the engineering problems and culture at VMware were significantly different than that of Facebook. How did VMware contrast with Facebook? Wow, that's a really tough one. So, of course, VMware, the VMware that I experienced from 2000 to 2008 wasn't the same company the whole time I was there either. I was there something like the 20th or 22nd engineer at VMware. By the time I left eight years later, there were you know many thousands of people in all kinds of roles. And broadly, there was a bunch of differences in VMware, both in terms of the kinds of technology it was building and the kind of business it was in with Facebook. So in terms of the technology that VMware was building... VMware, for, and I imagine your listeners are broadly familiar with VMware, but it's morphed a lot over the decades. Back then, VMware was very purely focused on delivering virtual machines, right? Delivering hardware-level virtual machines that let you slice up a chunk of PC hardware into lots of little software PCs. And believe it or not, this was a big, exciting, technical thing to be able to do in the late 90s and early aughts. There were you know, published papers that said you couldn't do it, for instance, there's a lot of sort of high-flying stunt systems programming that, that made it possible that I found really exciting because I was, you know, a really enthusiastic practitioner of systems back then. Still am in some ways, but uh, the frontiers moved on a bit. And the business that, that VMware was in was essentially selling hardware. It was hardware that was implemented in software, but it was software that people were going to put to the same uses that they put hardware to. And that meant that there was a really high bar for performance, for quality, for predictability, that, are, that there was a ton of attention paid to release engineering and the kind of art of putting bits in customers' hands that were, that were as close to flawless as we could imagine. And this is also sort of before the days of delivering software over the internet and before continuous delivery and continuous integration. You know, we used to talk, when we talked about the channel in software then, we meant a retail channel where shrink-wrapped boxes of CDs would show up. Right? They weren't DVDs yet, they were CDs. So in many ways, a different world than the world of delivering software over the internet that we sort of assume by default now today. And that focus on, first of all, being at the hardware level abstraction-wise, but also being at the hardware level in terms of the kind of reliability and predictability of the things we were, were giving to people was very, very different from providing a service over the internet in the environment of a kind of open-ended consumer product, right? Where you're doing something different every week than you were the week before, where there are more users every week than the week before, where the pattern that they're using it with is different in this place from that place just because of what happens to have caught on in Turkey versus what's caught on in New Zealand or whatever, was a radical change for me and a, and a really powerful education. I think I, you know, I, I apologize a lot to sort of old-time Facebookers for my first year at Facebook because I 
like lots of other somewhat seasoned software engineers who came to Facebook at the time, uh, was really laboring under the delusion that I had a lot to teach these folks. I was really laboring under the delusion that I knew how to do things right and that, you know, there's this computer science out there that has first principles in it. And, you know, that I knew how to kind of write good code and test and, uh, and all of this stuff in ways that they didn't. And the fact that sort of a lot of the things that were going on at Facebook seemed crazy to me at first initially sparked a lot of curiosity, but also a lot of skepticism on my part, right? I was, it seemed like from what I knew, none of this could work. And yet there it was, I could touch it in a web browser. I could load Facebook talk over and over again, and it kept working even though almost everything about the software practices was sort of upside down and backwards from what I'd experienced so far. And in terms of things that were, that just seemed radically different at the time, at the time I left VMware, I think the code I was writing, you know, the week I left VMware probably got into customers' hands two years, maybe a little bit more after I left VMware. And that was actually like the cycle of learning. That was how long it took you to find out whether your ideas were good or bad. That was how long it took you to find out whether the thing that you thought was going to be great was actually so great in practice. And by the time those two years had passed and, you know, a friend of mine who was still at VMware emailed me saying, hey, we finally did that release. You know, I'd been through so many iterations and tried so many different things at Facebook that I just was like, oh, I see the, the sort of cycle of being able to try things more times in a career is so powerful and even if kind of the raw economy wasn't, you know, drawing a lot of engineers over to the world of sort of consumer services at the time, just the the sheer pleasure and pace of being able to learn something in a couple of weeks instead of a couple of years uh, was so wonderful that I'd, I'd have happily done that forever from then on. What was your first project at Facebook when you joined the company? Yeah. So when I first started, I before I started, first of all, I talked to a lot of people on the Memcache team at Facebook. And when I was, you know, I was reading a lot of Memcache source code and stuff before I got started at Facebook and assumed that was what I was going to work on. But then when I got to the place, so Facebook already had uh, had instituted its sort of famous bootcamp system by then. I think at the time it was presented to me as, hey, here is how we do engineering hiring. All engineers start out in this bootcamp group. Uh, the bootcamp team is a team. It's just a team that has high churn. And, you know, you fix bugs for a while until you figure out the lay of the land and figure out which teams can use you and which teams are, are appealing to you as well. So it's kind of this stable marriage between new boot campers and, and teams that need personnel. And this was presented to me as just sort of the way things were done. I later found out that I was the second bootcamp class. Like I later found out that this was all kind of uh, somewhat theatrical, that they were presenting this as like a big institution that, you know, had been working for a long time. But the institution had its intended effect with me. I actually ended up somewhere different than I expected. So a couple of weeks in, I met uh, Aditya Agarwal, who's better known for lots of other things now, probably most recently was CTO of Dropbox. But Aditya ended up being my first boss at Facebook, and he was running the search team at the time. And the search backend was a little bit long in the tooth. And it also, there was also some product plans around this time. So to give you some idea, this is early 2009. And a kind of big, exciting feature on the web at the time was like autocomplete in search boxes. That felt kind of new, right? The idea that you'd type a few keys and it would actually be doing little Ajax requests in the background to kind of fill in what you're typing keys. Even seeing Ajax, I'm dating myself here. And we wanted to you know, Zuck was excited about this. We wanted to do that, but for people search on the on on Facebook, and the actual sheer numbers involved uh, were pretty stimulating, right? There were this is a long time ago, so it's a lot fewer users. I think we were celebrating around 200 million uh, monthly active users at the time. So kind of fact more than a factor of 10 off of where they are now. 
But still 200 million people, you know, over small numbers of hundreds of milliseconds uh, across the whole wide world seemed pretty challenging and interesting. So I ended up uh, spending the first couple of years at Facebook working on the search backend and specifically the parts of the search backend that supported this system. And, you know, kind of aside here, I can give you a link to a tech talk I gave around then after we shipped that system. And that was a great experience of this kind of quick iteration, right? We tried lots of different data structures, lots of different strategies for how we shard the data and things like that, you know, over the course of just six or eight months. And the data structures in the search application for Facebook, I can see why that would be a non-obvious set of problems to, to tackle because Facebook data can be modeled in so many different ways. You can model it as a graph or an inverted index, or an LRM cache. What data structures did you find to be most useful? Yeah, for this backend, the right answer was a cache, or excuse me, was a graph for us. So the most powerful feature that we had in our hands for, for ranking results was just distance in the social graph at the time. So I remember I used to, around at least when there were 200 million users, there are about 700 people named Keith Adams on Facebook. Right? It's a very common last name, pretty common first name. So lots and lots of Keith Adams is out there. Everybody at work who typed Keith Adams, that type ahead, I really, really wanted me to be number one with a bullet because it, you know, there's enough information out there that I'm the one they're talking about because we live in Menlo Park and because we work at Facebook and because we're in some of the same groups and, and so on and so forth, but most especially because we're not that far apart in the social graph. And the way that we kind of structured things, we didn't actually bother representing the user doing the query beyond just sending along their first degree connections. So the kind of the, the front end web application would have your direct connections in order to do anything. Right? One of the first things it did for every user interaction was just go out to memcache and fetch your friend list. So it, the query would actually throw my user ID away. My user ID doesn't help at all. I know who I am and it's not going to help with the search. But what does help with the search is who my friends are. So if you did a little prefix query that was like JEF, and some other person on the other side of the world happened to have all the same friends as you, they would actually get the same results as you. So the sort of the query was basically some tiny snippet of text, but most of the information in the query was actually your first degree edges. And this was all kind of hidden in the back end. It wasn't sort of that stuff wasn't going out over the internet. But and eventually you made it into a situation where you were working on PHP infrastructure, and this was some of your most influential work at Facebook. How did you find yourself working on PHP infrastructure? Yeah. So for those that don't know, Facebook was and is in most respects, a kind of overgrown LAMP stack app. So around the time I started, it was still recognizably your father's or your mother's LAMP stack application scaled out quite a bit. So you had, you know, Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP. The MySQL part of it, obviously we weren't on a single MySQL database anymore. We were doing client routing and client sharding in PHP to figure out which database to get to get a datum from or to update a datum in. And I think at the time we were on the order of small numbers of millions of lines of PHP. So good size program. Lots of complicated things can happen in small numbers of millions of lines. But the thing that was really getting our attention was that we were burning a ton of CPU executing this PHP. And this had two problems. The first problem was just that PHP is organically a single-threaded language. There's a little bit of nuance on that, but uh, it's close to true that it's just a single-threaded language. And if you are burning lots of CPU, that means you're also going pretty slow, right? So that single thread can only consume so many CPU cycles. So the fight, the site felt sluggish. 
right? It was feeling more and more sluggish. And there was a multi-pronged attack on that happening. There was another piece of this, which was actually economic. So at the time, this is kind of hard to imagine, but even as late as 2009, it wasn't manifestly clear to everybody what Facebook's business was going to end up being. There was some experimentation with like gifts, right? Maybe gift giving would be an organic activity. Like people noticed that there were, that people liked wishing each other happy birthday on the site, for instance. So they thought maybe giving people birthday gifts and taking a cut of that would be the thing to do. Uh, virtual gaming, you know, gaming was starting to happen and virtual currencies and gaming were starting to happen. So maybe that was going to be really important. Around the time of the IPO, Zynga was something like 30% of Facebook's revenue. So like that did end up being important. But it wasn't clear yet just how expensive it would be to run the site for a given user that we could possibly break even. So as far as 2009, which is, you know, a good many years into Facebook's history, from an economic point of view, Facebook was just this big hole in the ground that VC dollars had been poured into, right? It was just sort of this this thing that seemed to get a lot of usage, that seemed very popular, uh, attracted a lot of talented people. Everybody felt like there might be something there, but it wasn't obvious where you'd get the money from. And a big component of where those VC dollars were going was uh, CPUs. And uh, we needed to do something to reduce the CPU cost of, of running the site on PHP. And if you've never had an experience sort of trying to do heavy compute in PHP, you know, that is sort of not the express purpose of PHP, right? If you're doing, you know, heavy, heavy linear algebra or graphics or whatever, that is, you know, not a domain that PHP specializes in deeply. And there's, you know, if you would complain about this problem publicly at the time, uh, this is back when Facebook's engineering brand was a lot weaker than it is now. If you kind of talked about any of these problems on Hacker News or somewhere, you'd usually get sort of some some internet guy on Hacker News saying something like, well, yeah, you're using PHP wrong. It's a glue language for connecting database queries. You're not supposed to actually compute in it. But as Facebook was finding, and, and lots of other places have found since then, I mean, this is true at Wikipedia. It's true for, for Zynga, for lots of other kind of heavy users of server-side PHP where you actually had to scale out the back end. You end up having to do joins in the language. You end up having to do sort of some database joins where the, the join condition is essentially Turing complete, right? Is some application level construction, and the only thing that knows what in Facebook, what a user is and who their friends are and what a photo is and what the permissions on the album are and these other sorts of natural join conditions is the language itself. So you end up sort of fetching these big lists in PHP and then intersecting them with this sort of complicated logic and, and having only a handful of things come out of the intersection. And this was viewed as sort of a pattern that kept recurring. It wasn't going anywhere. It was core to the value that Facebook provided was that it connected all these kind of different people and types of media together. And we were going to take lots of, try lots of different things in parallel to try to get our hands around that. And one of the things that people were trying in parallel was to make PHP faster. So there is a really important, and the project I ended up working on to do that was called HHVM. But to sort of explain the context that HHVM arose in, there was a really important uh, predecessor effort that HHVM built on. And this was called, called HipHop, or within, within Facebook, HPHP. And HPHP was a project that uh, was started by, initially by Haiping Zhao, but you know, a, a significant team grew up around Haiping to do this. And HPHP was sort of a tr- what people call a transpiler these days. Uh, it took a PHP source base as input and tried to produce a semantically equivalent C++ program. And this might sound like a strange thing to do, but observe that, well, I mean, maybe it doesn't sound like a strange thing to do, right? 
PHP is slow, C++ is fast. If you can lower PHP down to C++, maybe you get a fast program out of it. And that's yeah. not an inherently crazy thing to attempt. And the project, uh, to you know, my continued amazement, I still find it really heroic that it worked as well as it did. They built a thing that actually worked, uh, that could take a big complicated PHP program like Facebook at the time, compile it to this completely different domain with a very different set of expectations, a very different runtime environment, compile it, link it, produce a gigantic binary, and that binary listened on port 80 of, of Facebook for several years and bought Facebook a lot of, uh, of runway. So, the, No, no. I mean, we could just pause and just uh, reflect on how unenviable a proposition that would seem if somebody came into my office and said, I've got a great idea for your next project. You're going to transpile every PHP application into C++. Go. You know, it's laudable that a team was actually able to do that, and it provided meaningful business value. Oh, it absolutely did. And it's sort of out of the gate, it was, you know, order of 2x faster, uh, therefore 2x more economical in terms of, you know, dollars per user spent on CPUs. And, you know, that bought us the, the company Facebook years of runway. So, so and, just for people who are not like super familiar with, with this idea, and I'm sure that's a lot of the audience, what were some of the shortcomings of that approach? Like what, you know, when you look at that, when you were looking at that approach, what opportunities for improvement did you see? Right. So one of the things that's an issue with that is if the transpiler version of HPHP were the only thing that existed, you'd have a very difficult development cycle, right? Because... One of the beautiful things about PHP is that it's very sparing of developer productivity. It's very respectful of developer time, right? So the normal PHP workload is that you hit save in your editor and you reload the page. There's not even like a web application server to restart because the kind of application model of PHP is that each web request is starts from nothing. PHP was kind of AWS Lambda before AWS Lambda came along, right? It uh, has an execution model that's very similar to the, the drawbacks and and upsides of Lambda. So you go from that to a world where my workflow is now save, invoke the HPHP compiler to you know translate this large source space into uh, an equally large, if not larger, C++ source space, invoke the entire C++ toolchain on that source space, including a linker that produces a multi-gigabyte binary. Fun story, Facebook for a while in the late aughts was driving uh, some bug fixing in the GNU linker toolchain because we were hitting uh, the limits of assigned int to represent binary sizes, and we seemed to be the first people to hit it. The way we hit it was by turning our multi-million line PHP program into a more multi-million line C++ program and then trying to link the whole thing into one big static binary. And this was you know, unacceptably slow. The, the compile times were on the order of a half hour at that time. And it meant that you needed to have some other runtime environment for just playing around in, right? You needed to have some kind of iteration cycle that was a lot shorter than that. So you still had a PHP interpreter, but now the PHP interpreter works really differently from the way that the actual production environment works. So you have a set of difficulties of kind of making sure that you have a set of bugs that appear where the dev environment is sort of so different from prod that bugs appear in one or the other and don't appear on the other side. And that led to some really hard uh, debugging situations. But More to the point, this is kind of where it starts to dovetail with my background at VMware. There is a history of trying to run heavily dynamic languages like PHP efficiently on hardware. And that history nudges us strongly in the direction of 
using runtime feedback to run the language efficiently, right? So while the sort of land speed record holding languages today are all statically compiled like Rust and C++, all the efforts we have to run languages like JavaScript or uh, Python or now PHP efficiently seem to need runtime feedback. They're all JITs, right? They don't just produce a static binary. And the reason that's true is that there are limits to what you can analyze ahead of time for these languages. You can't bound the set of values that are going to actually flow through uh, the data flow and control flow graph for this thing as well as you can with a C++ program. So your C++ compiler ahead of time can make decisions about what goes in a register, what goes in a floating point register, what the target of a branch is going to be, what the target of the call is going to be in ways that just are impossible for very simple computer science reasons for a PHP program or a JavaScript program. And when I was at VMware, the, the team that I was in was led by a man named Ole Agassin. And, uh, Ole Agassin is actually still at VMware, by the way. He's a distinguished engineer there and just is one of the most remarkable engineers I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Ole had come from a background of working on self and small talk, right? There'd been a community before sort of object orientation was cool that was trying to run these languages like self and small talk that were very dynamic and very aggressively object oriented in an efficient way. And they sort of were uh, that little nucleus of people from Aarhus in Denmark, including Ole Agassin, was a, a kind of a formative place for the future of just-in-time compilation, right? So Ole ended up at VMware because VMware's approach to doing hardware-level virtualization on the x86 actually involved JIT compilation. All right, so you know a colleague of his from then was, was Lars Bach, who ended up pioneering V8 for JavaScript, and both of them had... DNA from the self and small talk communities and had worked on some of the same projects. So I'd been a little bit steeped in this, at the time, somewhat obscure world of people trying to run dynamic languages fast, my previous gig. And I had a sort of, you know, athletic respect for what HPHP had achieved. Uh, it was a virtuoso feat of, of engineering and, and C++ programming. But I also had a conviction that there was something missing from that approach, that we'd need runtime feedback. And I started talking about this conviction of mine with a couple of other folks at Facebook at the time. One of them was Jason Evans. Jason Evans is an extraordinary systems programmer. He, Facebook came to know of him through J.E. Malik, which is a, a Malik-free implementation that he wrote that is wonderful. It's very scalable, very memory efficient, returns it, uh, memory to the operating system in a great way. Um, was working better for, for Facebook at the time in production than T.C. Malik, which, which is an allocator with similar goals, was. And we hired Jason Evans, and, and I just liked talking systems programming with him immediately. So I kind of unspooled this story for him about, like, wow, HPHP is amazing, but there's got to be something it's missing because of all the stuff that it can't resolve ahead of time. And we ended up roping into these conversations a fellow named Drew Porosky. And Drew Porosky uh, had come to us from Microsoft, where he'd worked uh, in Microsoft's DevDiv on, on tools related to the CLR which is a common language runtime, Microsoft's runtime for .NET and the relate, you know, associated ecosystem, all the languages that run on, on the .NET platform. And the three of us started talking more and more about this, and it started to come together into something that we'd released HPHP as an open source project. We had christened it hip-hop for public consumption because of, of trademark reasons. PHP is actually a registered trademark. So if you go around calling your project something-something-PHP, you'll get a sort of sternly worded letter. So if you grip, grep user dict words for words that start with H and then have a P and then an H and then a P, <laughs> hip hop is by far the most palatable one you'll come up with. So hip hop had been sort of released as an actual project. 
And me, Jason, and Drew started talking about something that eventually, before it had any real identity, we started calling the hip hop VM. And to kind of convince myself that there was something here, I built uh, during a hackathon actually in 2000, I want to say late 2009, maybe early 2010, I built a hackathon project that transpiled a tiny subset of PHP into JavaScript and ran it under V8, which had been released already. And, you know, in retrospect, that experiment, that kind of experiment is not very convincing to people who don't already want to believe you. You're running micro benchmarks. There's all kinds of ways to cheat. In retrospect, there were all kinds of hard things about PHP that my little prototype just completely punted. But it felt like something we could reach out and touch and felt like something that you could see running PHP faster than we were running PHP. And that felt like a sort of sweet motivational taste. The approach we ended up taking had nothing to do with that. And the hackathon project as a code artifact was thrown away. But as a sort of interactive thing that you could feel and get excited about, I think was still really useful for me and Drew and Jason at first. Just to, just to make sure I understand this correctly. So HHVM, the in terms of the prototype that you made, was a way of running PHP on the V8 JavaScript engine. Yeah, it, I don't think we were calling it HHVM at that time. I think there were two things going on. One was me, Drew, and Jason had, had started saying, you know, a JIT could do well with PHP for first principles reasons. And wouldn't it be cool if there was this system that was like hip hop, but was the hip hop virtual machine instead of being a fully ahead of time system the way hip hop as it was then was. And the other thing that was going on was a hackathon came up and I wanted to play around with, you know, convincing myself there was something here. And so I don't, I don't know if that, you know, it's a night's work, right? It was a throwaway effort. I don't think I ever bothered naming it. But that little effort, even though it's not real science and isn't sort of publishable and doesn't tell you anything about the language PHP and how that would really run if you tried to repurpose V8 to run PHP, convinced us that there was something there. And you could see something that at least looked like PHP running a lot faster than we were able to run PHP. Right. And we've done some shows about JavaScript engines, and you do see some emphasis on the fact that it's it's a just-in-time compilation environment rather than this entirely ahead-of-time compilation world like C++. So it, intuitively, it makes sense to me, if I understand correctly, it's the same thinking that you were coming from, intuitively, it makes sense to me that there will be some uh, symmetry between what you want to optimize for with a with a PHP getting PHP fast versus you know on JavaScript versus like that would be more symmetrical getting uh, PHP to run quickly in in a JavaScript VM versus uh, running quickly in a C plus plus environment since that's a, an ahead of time compilation environment. Yeah, I think you're you're exactly right. And there's uh, my thinking about this has has changed a lot over the years, right? In part because of the experience that I had for you know about four years working on HHVM. But the core problem of trying to run a language like JavaScript or PHP or Smalltalk or Self fast is just the level of dynamism in the runtime, right? just that the binding of names to sort of code locations is so fluid and can differ from run to run. In a very real sense, JavaScript programs and PHP programs kind of link themselves at runtime every time they run. Right? They kind of pull in the parts that they're going to run and then bind names to those parts and start executing them. And to be clear, there and are... And V8, V8 optimizes for that fact. 
Exactly. Yeah. So a runtime that expects that is going to have tricks up its sleeve that a C++ runtime just doesn't have because it has no reason for them. Yeah. And so how did that kernel of knowledge from the hackathon prototype, how did that turn into something that is now as mature as HHVM? Yeah, that's a great question. So at the time, it was actually really controversial sort of what we should do and how we should do it. I think when, as Drew and Jason and I got more excited about the idea, the core idea, it felt like we had a couple of ways to pursue it, right? One way to pursue it was to try to repurpose V8 in some ways, right? So give V8 a a PHP front end or give it the ability to run PHP more deeply. That would have been a mistake in ways that we actually weren't fully equipped to appreciate at the time, but that we can touch on later if you want. There's a great paper called The Repurposed JIT Phenomenon about the fact that it's a lot of hard work to write a JIT. And so when people come up with a new language that they wish they had a JIT for, they try to find some way to get another JIT to do the heavy lifting for them. This usually happens with the JVM or the .NET CLR. So for instance, uh, JRuby is an example of a, of a JIT for Ruby where they try to repurpose the Java virtual machine to do a good job for them. And like JRuby is a wonderful project I don't, whenever I talk about JRuby as an example of the repurposed JIT phenomenon, Charles Nutter, who's, who's JRuby's benevolent dictator, shows up and, you know, accuses me of all kinds of intellectual dishonesty. So, you know, big asterisk here, go read everything Charles Nutter has to say about JRuby if you're skeptical. But I think there are statistical realities about Java programs that the JVM optimizes for, right? The JVM is there to run Java and to some extent Scala programs well. And the design of Scala is influenced by the design of the JVM, right? Scala is the language that it is instead of just being F-sharp, for instance, in part because it has to run well on the JVM, right? And there were a million things about PHP that would just have been terrible fits for V8 that I wasn't even aware of at the time. Probably the biggest one is that the runtime for PHP is reference counted, whereas V8 was optimized around tracing garbage collectors. And just... To dive in here for those that aren't necessarily automatic memory management buffs, there are two kind of big approaches to automatically reclaiming memory from a running program without explicit freeze in it, right? One approach is trace the graph of objects that can be reached. Anything that hasn't been found by that tracing, you know it's garbage because there's no path to it. Reclaim all that memory. That raw approach is associated with controlling pause times, right? If you are interested in doing a good job with a tracing GC, your core problem is controlling pause time. There are good ways to control pause time, but that's the core problem. The alternate approach is reference counting. And in reference counting, each object maintains a count of how many inbound arrows it has. You keep those counts up to date as the graph of, uh, of references in your program change. And whenever anything goes to zero, you know that it's garbage and you can reclaim it. The core problem with reference counting is keeping the cost of updating those counts controllable, right? Because almost every time that you touch anything, you're running around writing chunks of memory that you otherwise wouldn't really have to be writing. So if you were to try, the the crazy thing about PHP is that it exposes the semantics of reference counting to PHP programs. So if you try to make a PHP runtime on top of the Java virtual machine or V8 or the CLR, or pick your favorite, you know, JIT runtime here, you're probably going to be running reference counting with all of its problems on top of tracing collection with all of its problems. And you'll have a kind of multiplicative effect of the overheads that that you face usually. 
Um, and this has been the reason that sort of repurposed JIT has burned PHP especially hard historically. So it's good we didn't try to reuse V8. One option we had was to try to go our own way entirely, right? So start up a new project, a new runtime for PHP, maybe based on the, the sort of mainstream open source PHP engine, maybe, maybe not. The feeling then, which I think in retrospect was correct, was that that was an awful lot of unrewarded work to take on in the Facebook environment where HPHP was successfully running the whole complicated application that was our actual target, right? So there had been a ton of extensions rewritten into HPHP. It had it was beginning to, to export some language extensions, right? So it brought yields or gener- Python-style generators uh I, as far as I know, first appeared in any PHP variant inside of Facebook as part of hip-hop. And it felt like it was going to be important to track hip-hop really closely, in part just because that was going to be what the application we cared about was going to be running on. So we made the decision to build the hip-hop VM as a physical extension right within the same source tree as hip-hop, the ahead-of-time compiler. So there would be this one way you could invoke HPHP where... It would be an ahead-of-time compiler. There's this other mode you could run it in where it was a VM with a full runtime and, and full compilation stack inside of it. So wait, what was the advantage of having those two different paths that it could take? The advantage there was just the amount of sort of extensions to the language, right? So to the front end of the compiler, parsing and so forth, and pieces of the runtime that we could use. So HipHop had a working you know, PHP reference counting memory management system that we wanted to piggyback on. And it also had a bunch of life support in the form of a web server that was integrated, right? So PHP is usually used as part of a web server. HipHop also replaced Apache in the LAMP stack. So it was really kind of the, you know, LHM stack uh, instead of, you know, taking out both the A and the P in LAMP stack. And sort of server configuration would have been the same. So there was a lot of non-trivial stuff that HipHop already had working that seemed like we had nothing special to add to. Let's take this as an example of what Facebook was doing differently than some of the other companies in Facebook's vintage. So, you know, the easiest status quo to draw from that time is is Google. The status quo for a hyperscale company was Google, and Facebook did things differently than Google in terms of scalability, both for technical reasons, but also for maybe cultural reasons or or just just I don't know deliberate reasons product reasons how did did Facebook's strategy and Facebook's engineering culture differ from that of Google or from whatever else you would define as the status quo at the time yeah it's a really interesting question I think and I, I should preface this by saying I've never worked at Google it seems like there are a lot of brilliant people there and there were a lot of brilliant people there have done a lot of great work and I don't think we necessarily like got something right that they didn't understand or anything. But it's true that there was a different house style in various ways. And I think one of the ones that, that probably jumps out at me is just this, you know, the, the whole reason that the HHVM project felt like it had a reasonable motivation was the existence of this large and growing PHP monolith, right? And I think in this, the house style of Google at the time, while they weren't calling them microservices and that sort of vocabulary around microservices that we use today would have been a little alien at the time, I think from the outside, my impression is that you could have thought of Google as a sort of C++ microservices shop around that time. 
So if they found themselves sitting on, you know, a 4 million line application uh, that was sort of tightly integrated and was just calling functions all over the places and passing data all over the place and sharing one big complicated uh, set of reasoning about why it all works and one big suite of tests and so on. I think that would have been aesthetically odious to a lot of people inside of Google. And to be clear, all else being equal, it is a little aesthetically odious, right? If there's no reason for it to be that way, it probably should not be that way. So I think relatively early on, Google had some success with heavily verticalized products, first of all, right? When Google Maps and Gmail and Google Web Search were sort of the only three things that people thought of initially with Google, those were three like completely different products, right? There was no login that you shared across them. There was no kind of layer of identity or uh, data sharing that unified them. Their UIs looked completely different. And so a really sort of siloed development process where different teams had their own code bases, had their own release cycles, had their own tooling, shared some infrastructure maybe below the user visible level, but where the things listening on the other side of port 80 were very different depending on which product you were using, reflected the challenges that Google had and reflected the experiences they were trying to make happen. To the extent that there was something different about Facebook as an experience at the time, it was its unity. It was the fact that Facebook was very identity-centered It didn't make sense to do anything on Facebook not logged in practically. And the abstractions and concepts that occurred in different Facebook products had some sort of coherence and unity to them, right? So the set of things that you could do with a status update, like like it and comment on it and share it and so forth, were also the set of things that you could do with a photo, right? And were also the set of things that you could do with a web link that you found and so on. And there was a kind of embracing of that complexity in the form of one large code base that made it easier to make certain product experiences happen. And I talk a lot with people, this is still an important kind of concept, I think, that we live in a time where we're almost in a more is better microservices regime, right? Where people will tell you that sort of dissecting your product into independent services is a good in and of itself. I think with all else being equal, that's probably true, but all else isn't always equal. And I use the product example a lot of times of Microsoft Excel, just because it's very universally accessible. Lots of people have used Excel and a surprising diversity of use cases in Excel are super well supported, right? And a lot of where that's come from has been, you think of sort of all the the entire set of features in Excel, right? They've got N features, right? They've got pivot tables and they've got formulas and they've got visual basic and they've got sheets and they've got charts and they've got, you know, the charts themselves are a universe of thousands of features. A lot of the value of Excel actually comes from just tackling the matrix of feature to feature interactions, right? Those N squared, how does this work with that other thing? And Microsoft actually paid PMs to sit there and think, okay, what should happen with a pivot table when there's a chart and I paste it into a thing and, you know, like, they have gone through the hard first product labor and then engineering labor to think through how all that should actually work, write the code to make sure it works that way, and then put it in their monolith, right? Then put it in their big ball of logic that actually determines what Excel is like. And Facebook at the time, uh, and I think my current job with, with Slack's product as well has this characteristic, was more like that Excel experience than like the web search versus Gmail experience, right? And I think there are companies and domains and applications where that sort of heavily siloed, heavily separated thing can work really well. 
but there are other applications that sort of want to be tightly integrated and organically grow to be so big that the tail does start to wag the dog, right? That you do start doing things like building your own web server or building your own programming language or both in the case of HHVM to better accommodate this very valuable but very hard to split up thing. And I think that can be okay. And I'm not sure that we're as an industry as as okay with accepting that as we ought to be. There are a number of strategic inflection points in Facebook's history that the company was able to overcome through great engineering, through great product organization. So whether we talk about the shift to mobile or the overcoming the lack of a business model right after the IPO or kind of contesting Google+, Plus, those kinds of different strategic inflection points, there was something about Facebook that has made it very resilient to strengths or very resilient to threats. And I don't know, maybe it's it's the charisma of, of Zuckerberg or it's the just the energy that was in the company at the time for whatever reason. Do you have any sense of what it is about the Facebook culture that has allowed it to to come out on the other end of strategic inflection points when there are other companies that, you know, when they hit a strategic inflection point, they they can't overcome it and they they perish? That's an interesting question. I think, you know, I'm experiencing, let's see, I want to answer this humbly because my experience of Facebook was as an engineer and while there were technical elements to how Facebook sort of executed its plan to get through those problems, like the phenomena you're pointing at were, you know, I think more at the scale of, of kind of company leadership and, uh, and strategy than, than anything I have privileged insight into other than the fact I happened to be mm. there at the time. Right. I will say that sort of the one, the first one of those that I felt like I weathered as, a, as part of the team at Facebook was, uh, was Google+. So circa 2009, 2010 or so, there was, uh, it was really clear that Google was, that a drumbeat was building inside of Google to destroy Facebook. And it wasn't sort of to get into social networking or destroy Facebook and Twitter and Bebo and MySpace. It wasn't, uh, it was clearly focused on us. And there were a lot of kind of varying levels of white and gray hat things that were happening in the interactions between those companies, right? One of them was that there was a lot of kind of aggressive scraping of the social graph going on on the part of Google, seemingly feeding back into their products that they were building. And when credible word about sort of what would eventually launch as Google Plus kind of reached us, I remember it feeling, you know, when I first heard that news, I remember it feeling really scary. And this is kind of a hard thing to to cast your mind back to 10 years now. But it wasn't clear Facebook was going to win or whatever, right? Uh, Google was enormously larger, enormously more resourced, uh, seemingly willing to do anything to defeat us, and has many engineers as worked at Facebook at the time hold up building this straight-up Facebook clone, right? So they'd had a couple of uh, sort of misfires already, right? They'd had Google Buzz and um, to some extent Google Wave, although that was a sort of orthogonal uh, attack in some ways. And with Google Plus, what was sort of alarming for us was like there was no pride or sort of there was no claim that they'd like had some insight into how to do it right when Facebook was doing it poorly. It just was a Facebook clone. It just was a ripoff, except they were going to make you log into it to search the web. And that was very terrifying when we first heard about it. And 
The thing that I want to give a lot of credit to for Facebook leadership with, with our reaction to Google Plus at the time was the balance between reaction and overreaction that they managed to strike. There is new information in the fact that a competitor is doing this, and it would be crazy to ignore it. And it, it unleashes this kind of nervous energy in the workforce too, right? We're all very bought in. We're, we're all, you know, want our Facebook stock to be worth something someday. So there's a, a kind of potential energy there that you'd like to harness and that you'd like to use, but you still have a strategy that you're trying to execute on and you still have a roadmap that you need to get down and you still need to grow and you still need to keep the lights on. And the balance between kind of messaging this in a way that accepted the challenge uh, but framed it as an adventure and a journey we were on together and a challenge that we were going to rise to as opposed to, you know, just the end of the world, right? That there's this gorilla that's enormously more powerful. You know, they're, all the engineers who work at Google are 10 feet tall and eat razor blades for breakfast and they're all going to come destroy us. That struck me as a really important component of it was just the internal messaging of this is, you know, if we make it through this, this is going to be the greatest story that we're ever going to be able to tell about our careers. And I hope I have a few better stories now, but it sure was the topper for several years. So yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, you'd want to kind of paint a, a mosaic of this. I'm, I'm sure that other people would have different answers to this. And a computer programmer, you know, some hotshot programmer is not the person who probably has all the insights into this. But in retrospect, that was really an impressive display of leadership on Facebook's part at the time. Well, all right. Well, you'll be one part of that mosaic. Last question or a couple questions. The constraints around Facebook when you joined in 2009, those are very different operating constraints than building a company today in 2019. And now that you're at Slack, you're, you're, you have access to much more technology than we had 10 years ago. What are the most notable ways in which scaling a software company has changed? That's hands down public cloud by 100,000 miles. The amount of energy and sort of long time leads that went into buying a real estate and pouring cement on it and running power out to it and building it out versus what the public cloud offers is an entirely different world. And so getting to, so Slack is, has been public cloud native for its entire life. And in principle, Slack could someday scale to the point where we're getting off of public cloud and running in its own data centers could become economically viable. It's not something we eliminate. Like we want our customers to view us as a service and you know, it's sort of the location that that service is physically housed in to be an implementation detail that they don't have to care about. But it's been astonishing how far we've gotten without that even coming close to being a reasonable trade-off of sort of convenience and flexibility versus the public cloud so far. I think there's a real generational shift between the the era of startups where, you know, it was originally Mark Stormroom and a Linux server under his desk, and then it was, you know, a colo facility somewhere, and then it was a bigger colo facility, and then we had to go buy a data center and then and so on. That the capital intensiveness of that and the long time leads of those kinds of scaling are just utterly a thing of the past now because of public cloud. Any notable differences between the engineering culture at Slack versus that of Facebook? Yeah, I think in many ways, you know, we started off talking about VMware, then we talked about Facebook. And in some ways, Slack is a business model that's closer to VMware's, right? We're an enterprise software company combined with a tech stack that's that's closer to Facebook's, right? We're you know, running in the cloud, running HHVM server side, running MySQL for storage, and so on. And I think the engineering culture, you know, in many ways it comes out of your company culture is a complicated nonlinear function of the culture of your founders, right? 
the founders of Slack, it wasn't their first time at the rodeo. They'd had a very successful startup in the past in the form of Flickr. They were at a different phase in their lives. That experience of having done something successful before reduces some of the paranoia that this is the only good idea you'll ever have. And there is a general feeling, I think, of there is an attitude that uh, since we are in the business of, of providing a service to customers who directly pay us, that surprising customers or upsetting them or doing something with their data that isn't exactly what they imagined we would do with their data is hugely unacceptable. Not that those things were ever that acceptable at Facebook. There's, you know, there's this trope about Facebook that you're the product there. And that always really frustrated me when I was at Facebook. You're not the product of Facebook. You're the audience. It's like television or broadcast television. You don't pay a fee for. There are ads that support it. And that's where the money comes from. But it's not quite like you're the product of broadcast television. Like if, you know, broadcast television can't manufacture more of you. They can't store you in a warehouse. They can't ship you from place to place. They can't decide to build you in some different way tomorrow. You really do need to choose to tune in for broadcast television to have any value. And and the same is true of Facebook. But I think being in this business of directly taking your customer's money and then being completely free to leave tomorrow if they don't like you changes your relationship to customers in ways that, you know, that I find great, honestly. Like I, I think this is a much simpler relationship to think about a sort of two-way business transaction as opposed to a three-way business transaction. Keith Adams, thanks for coming back on. It's been really great talking to you. Thanks, Jeff. Likewise. Likewise.